I'm, I'm doing the same message, but I can't ever do the same message twice, so I'm going to do it different, differently, but I'm still going to follow the, the PowerPoint. Um, but I want to talk about the fatherhood of God this morning. I, I thought Trent did a great job a couple weeks ago touching on fatherhood, manhood, and just kind of in general. And so I wanted to take the opportunity uh, to continue to just talk about um, what is God like. So I want you to just think about that for a minute. Um, you know, everybody answers that question. Even an atheist answers that question. Uh, and you realize what you believe about God governs everything else, right? It, it really does. When you, when you start asking the deeper questions about life, ultimately you end up with questions about origin. Why are we here? What is God like? And so the image that you construct of God is very, very important. And so I think what I want to invite you to do today is ask yourself, how have you, because most people don't do this with consciousness, they don't do it with intention or awareness. Most people end up constructing an image of God uh, based on whatever is given to them through a lens of evaluation of whatever seems right or sounds good to them. And even that lens was given to you. Right? So, I want to ask you to examine for a minute what your view of God is and how do you know that your view of God is accurate? How do you know that's correct? It's not, it's, it's not enough to just be able to answer, this is what God's like. I want you to ask yourself the deeper question, how do I know this is what God is like? If you're here this morning, maybe you're just exploring, you're, you're not sure that God exists. How do you know that He doesn't exist? <laughs> and don't let your need for certainty prevent you from asking and exploring those questions. And so what I want to present to you this morning is a Christian answer to that question. And I'm using the term Christian I'm not using it loosely like we use it today to identify people who just believe in Jesus. But Jesus could be anything from a great teacher to the Son of God to God incarnate to a oneness type model of God where Jesus in is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without distinction. I mean, we use the Christian term very loosely. I want to use it very traditionally. I want to use it very correctly in terms of the way the Christian faith has been hammered out over the centuries. So for a lot of people, when they ask themselves, what is God like? For a lot of us, we're going to say, well, and then we say, how do I know what God is like? We're going to say, well, the Bible tells me what God is like. Yes? And this, this is true. The Bible does tell us what God is like. But I want you to think about something for a minute. The Bible that we have, that you have on your phone or your iPad or the Internet or in your lap, this book was given to us from a church that had been in existence for three centuries already. Now, the Old Testament Scriptures, obviously, were already in place. But there is good scholarly debate about what made up the list of Old Testament scriptures when Paul and uh, other people in the first century, even the rabbis in the Talmud, are referencing the scriptures. We don't have a concise list. This is what was in them. So there are books that they could have considered scripture that aren't in your Bible. And there might be books in your Bible that they didn't consider scripture. It's just it's open for debate is all I'm trying to say. So ultimately, the book that we have of the Old Testament and the New Testament was given to us by a church that had already framed out an understanding of who God was. And their understanding of who God was came more out of their worship and experience than from scholarship. And what they gave was a Trinitarian what we call a Trinitarian view of God. See, John says, John the Apostle in 1 John says, God is love. How many of you would agree this morning that God is love? Let me see your hands. All right, now, 
He doesn't say God is loving like it's a characteristic of God. He said God is love. Right? Now, consider this for a minute. If you have love, in order for love to exist, there has to be a lover and a beloved. So in order for God to be love, intrinsic in His being... There has to be an aspect of God that is the lover and an aspect of God that is loved. So therefore, in a Christian context, to say God is to speak of one being, but not a singularity. There has to be more than one in the Godhead. So the early understanding of the Trinity was this was that God the Father and God the Son always existed in a relationship of mutual love. And it was believed by some that that love relationship was the person of the Holy Spirit. And the love between them was a person, and that person was, is, the Holy Spirit. That's the view of God from a Christian perspective. And the gospel is not really that God had to come and forgive you of your sins so that you could go to paradise or go to heaven. The gospel is, is that Jesus came as uh, God incarnate in order, what God did was opened the relationship of the Trinity to humanity and embraced us. So that through the Son, you could have the same relationship with the Father that He has, and the Father could have the same relationship with you that He has with Jesus, and you could have the Holy Spirit, that the Trinitarian life of God opened up and embraced humanity. That was the vision of the church that gave you your Bible. Now, let's back up a little bit, and let's look at this from a Jewish perspective, all right? Because you understand, Jesus was Jewish. Right? Uh, The first followers of Jesus were Jewish. And the core of the Jewish faith is the Shema. And it talks about the Lord our God who is one. So for them, God was a singularity. There's nuances to that, but you don't, you don't want a seminary class. He was, he was a singularity. So it would be impossible from a Jewish context, logically, to speak of God as love because you only have the lover. Are, are you doing all right? Now, so what convinced these Jewish followers of Jesus to fashion out a completely different understanding of who God was than what had been given to them previously as part of their Hebraic heritage. It was the resurrection of Jesus. See, until Jesus was resurrected, he could just be another prophet. Until Jesus was resurrected, and then it's up for you to decide, is he a true true prophet or a false prophet? He could have just been another rabbi. He could have just been another person who came out of Second Temple Judaism who claimed to be the Messiah. But the fact that they witnessed him crucified, dead, buried, and raised from the dead put what he said on an authority above everything else that was written. So that for the early followers of Jesus, who were all Jewish, Jesus' authority is now greater than anything in the Tanakh, or what we call the Old Testament. Because He raised from the dead. Jeremiah didn't raise from the dead. Moses didn't raise from the dead. David didn't raise from the dead. Jesus did. And so Jesus comes and says, basically, that he had always been with his Father. And so he brings a Trinitarian view of who God is. Now, that may not be your view of God. 
But the question is, who gave you your view and how accurate is it? I love this quote by Voltaire. He says, we ask the question, what is God like? He says, in the beginning God created man in his own image and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. (laughs) So how do you know that your God is not a figment of your imagination? That's actually what idolatry is. In ancient cultures, they fleshed out idolatry. They externalized their idolatry. By making, they took an image of their own heart, fashioned it out here, and worshipped it. The difference between them and us is we do not externalize our view of God. But we can still have a manufactured idol in our heart if we have a false view of God. Now, the reason we don't externalize our view is because of the the Hebraic influence upon the world. Because one of the commandments was what? Don't make any idols, right? Don't make God any images. Why would God say that? Do you know why God would say that? Because He didn't want an image of Himself to come from the darkness of the human heart. The image that he was going to give of himself, he did not want to originate with man, because if it originated with man, it would be the man, it would be the God that man made in his own image. It would be Israel returning the favor to God. What he wanted was the icon, which is the word that means image, of God to come out of himself. He wanted it to be from his own heart, which is why John chapter 1 says, the Son, the only begotten God, who is in the heart or the bosom or the inward part of the Father, he has declared him because Jesus now becomes the, he becomes the image of God because he came from the heart of God. So to see any image of God that you cannot find in Jesus is imaginary, clouded with darkness, idolatry, and a violation of the first two commandments. Make sense? Come with me to Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, but if our gospel is hid, and I apologize, this isn't King James, that must be my default setting that I had when I was cutting and pasting. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds, everybody say minds, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The icon of God, exactly what I'm saying. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What I want you to see, first of all, is that if there's darkness inside us, it's not a darkness that's there because of God. It's a darkness that's there because somewhere we've agreed with the lies of Satan who has crafted God in his own image and offered that to us. And if we agree with that, then there's darkness. That's what Paul's saying. And it veils us from being able to see. So we have trouble seeing God for who He really is because of the blindness or the darkness that's in our own heart. Not because of anything that's in God, right? We know this, right? Now here's the other interesting thing about it. He takes Genesis day one, Paul does, in Second Corinthians here, this passage that we just read, Genesis day one, God commanding light in the darkness. And he says, this is not just about creation. This is the paradigm whereby God has progressively revealed his image and his glory to humanity. Just because Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles does not mean all of Paul's converts were Gentiles. He went to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So he's pointing them back to the Torah. He's pointing them back to the very, very beginning, day one of creation. And he's saying what God did in the day one of creation, that's exactly how he's revealed himself to us in Christ. So it, so day one of creation becomes the paradigm. It becomes the governing frame for how God reveals himself. Right? 
So let's look at Genesis 1. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. In the Hebrew, it's tohu vubohu. And it means chaotic. But we translate it without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning, day one. Now watch this. Because this is an interesting progression. I want you to notice that God had to divide the light from the darkness. When God first speaks light, darkness and light are commingled. We do not have a reference for that because we come after day one. But if you can imagine, just try to imagine what it must have been like for darkness and light to be commingled and then for God to look at a mixture of darkness and light and say, the light is good. And then separate it out so that what was good became clearly distinguished. Yes? All right, now watch this. The earth creation is actually, in Genesis 1, God's opposite. Now, from a mystical Jewish perspective, what they would say is that God, as the giver, was creating a receiver, and receiving is opposite of giving, so therefore creation had to come out opposite of who God was. But look at this, from a, just from a strictly Christian New Testament perspective. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light. Everybody say, God with me, God is light. But notice, the earth is in darkness. Opposites, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 14, 33 says, God is the author of peace and not confusion. But we find that creation is chaotic or it's without form and void. So it's completely opposite, isn't it? And the word for deep, when it says the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the deep, the word there is tehom in the Hebrew, and it means hellish. The abyss. So the earth is opposite of how God is and who God is, but God doesn't abandon it to the garbage can or the lake of fire. God doesn't separate Himself from it and say, I can't have fellowship with this creation because it's not like me. I can't have fellowship with this creation because it's in opposition to me. He does the exact opposite of what you might think. Rather than abandoning the earth, or rather than distancing himself from this creation, he condescends to it. He comes down from the heights of where he is. He comes, even if you will, out of the light, the unapproachable light in which he dwells, and enters into the darkness. And he holds the earth. The word there for, for moving is poor translation. Even hovering is poor translation. The picture there, and I've done this for you before, but the picture there is a mother who, who draws the earth close to her in a nurturing fashion. It's as though God's Spirit comes down and this, this horrible, dark, hellish, chaotic mess, He condescends to it, He comes close to it, and He holds it close to Him. And then he speaks, and when he speaks, he releases light into the darkness, but they're commingled. So then he has to do something else. He has to separate the light from the darkness, and he calls the light good. Everybody say, the light is good. What's amazing is what Paul's doing. Paul, I think he's a theological genius because what he's doing is he's saying the gospel that I'm preaching is right there in the first five verses of the Torah. That this is what God is like. God does not leave us when we're contrary to Him. He does not separate Himself from us when we're in darkness. He does not abandon us or judge us or condemn us when we are in opposition to Him. Instead, He draws closer. Where sin did abound, grace does much more abound. That it is in the nature of God to condescend to His creation and even get down in the darkness with His creation because that's the only way He can bring light to 
and draw creation back into relationship with Him and literally liberate uh, creation from, from darkness and chaos and hellishness so that it can reach and fulfill the potential which God put within it for communion with Him. And Paul says this is what God did with humanity. So that he reinterprets, and all the New Testament writers, be it John, be it Luke, be it Matthew, be it Mark, all the New Testament writers reinterpret Israel's history in light of cosmic humanity because they're reinterpreting from the person of Christ rather than from the text itself. They're not getting to Jesus from the text. They're taking Jesus and bringing Him back to the text. Which is why you didn't get your Bible, I mean, theoretically, as a church, until after, until after who God was according to Christ and according to apostolic tradition was firmly in the mind of the church. Only then was she ready for the Bible. Because you can say, I find out who God is from the Bible all day long. And the thing is, you know as well as anybody that you can make the Bible, you can proof text any God you want to from the Bible. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. If you want hippie, pacifist Jesus... Uh, and say God is like Him, you can find that in the Bible. If you want angry, vindictive God who, who kills His enemies and, and, and shows, uh, shows racial favoritism to certain races, you can find Him. You can justify it. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization and claims to believe the Bible. You can find any God you want to in the Bible. Think about how humanity was after the fall. I'm going to give this to you first and then we'll we'll kind of walk through it in the story just a little bit. But the Bible tells us that humanity before Christ came, before the incarnation, before our redemption, that we were held in captivity in our mind by Satan and by the powers of darkness. It actually says in Ephesians 5, 8, Paul goes further and he says, not only are you held in darkness, but you were darkness. It was intrinsic to your nature. In 1 Corinthians 6.14, he says, Darkness has no fellowship with the light. And we know, of course, that man was unregenerate and without access to the indwelling or revealing truth of the Holy Spirit. So humanity descends into darkness. It begins with Adam and Eve, but it doesn't stop there. Again, from a Jewish perspective, the fall didn't happen in the garden. The fall happened. The fall of humanity happened in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. The the descent of humanity away from God is told for you from Genesis chapter 3 to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and then God starts over, not with Jesus immediately, God starts over in Genesis 12 with who? With Abraham. So let's, let's walk through this. So Adam and Eve are in the garden, and what happens? Everything's going fine, right? They're fellowshipping with God, they're enjoying God, they're in His image, everything's going great, and what happens? The serpent comes, right? And what does the serpent say? Has God said, you can eat of every tree of the, you can't eat of every tree of the garden? I mean, you know how it goes, right? And he points out the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and and tempts them to eat. But what does he tell them? He says, God's holding out on you. Essentially what he says is he begins he begins to weave the first fabric of the veil that he's going to put over the mind of humanity. Because he says, God is not really good. God is holding out on you. God is lying to you about death. God is afraid you're going to become like him, and you're going to know good and evil, and you can live and exist independently without him. So he sows a seed of doubt about the goodness and the generosity of God. And when they buy into that, now they are seeing God through a veil. There was no reason for them to be afraid of God and hide themselves from God. They perceived God differently because now they're perceiving Him through the first stitches of the veil of darkness. So the next phase comes along, and what, what do we find next? Cain and Abel, right? And, and, and so Cain does what? Cain kills his brother Abel, right? Now, if you read the story very carefully, God never punishes Cain. God never even talks to Cain 
about punishment. He just asks him, where's your brother? And Cain says, my burden from my sin is too much to bear. And so Cain takes himself further away from the presence of God. God does not drive him further away from his presence. Because he thought God's not good. God's good. He was, actually, he was afraid of retribution. He was afraid of somebody paying him back for murder. And God, rather than being the representative of retribution in the story, God puts a limit on retribution and puts a mark on Cain. Not because Cain was marked because he was despicable, but he was marked out of love because God's trying to curb the darkness of his own mind, which is already descending into an abyss of retribution and violence. And so God stands out clearly, not as the retributive God, but as the God who seeks mercy and preservation, even for a murderer. You see it? So by the time you get to Abraham, man's become a total idolater. So that Abraham comes, Abram comes out of the Ur of the Chaldees, but he's coming out of an incredibly demonic, idolatrous, Society. In other words, humanity had completely descended into darkness, into chaos, and into hellishness. And so what does God do? God begins to open up to humanity. You have to understand, in the Bible itself, in the Torah itself, God is not embracing the Jews. He's not embracing the Jews when He's embracing Abraham. He's embracing humanity. Because He tells Abraham, in you and in your seed... Come on, saints, you know the rest. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham is not just the representative of Israel. Abraham is the representative of all of humanity. He stands, if you will, as the new Adam. Because God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. God blessed Adam, said be fruitful and multiply. After the fall, there's just curses, right? So God embraces Abraham and tells him what? You're going to be fruitful, you're going to multiply, you're going to fill the earth, and everybody's going to be blessed by you. He's, he's, he's stating over Abraham what he stated over Adam. So Abraham, in a sense, becomes the new Adam. He's the new representative of humanity. I'm preaching a whole lot better than you're shouting this morning. So what's he doing? He's condescending into the darkness. Do you see it? He's embracing humanity in Abraham, but but Abraham, for the most part, he's still in the dark. So God begins to tell Abraham and his descendants who he really is. So what's he doing? He's speaking light. But the important thing to understand is light does not come in separated from the darkness of the fallen mind of Adam. It's commingled with the fallen mind of Adam. Which is why some people have a problem with the Old Testament. If I'm understanding the progression right, Abraham to John the Baptist, is light and darkness. It's the phase of the light of God revealed in Christ and the darkness of the fallen mind of Adam still in a commingled state. Because humanity was not getting it, what God was really like. The image, the icon, had not yet come forth. So who Christ is is all about your worship, which is why for the first really almost four centuries of church history, their understanding of the person of Christ came out of their worship, not out of their books. Because now they have an image they can worship. It comes from the heart of God rather than from the fallen mind of Adam. Full of light. So it's not until Christ comes that light gets separated from the darkness. For the purpose of clarity, the good that is in God gets separated from the dark projections of the satanically woven veil over the fallen mind of humanity. Which is why the only way you can understand God is to have the mind of Messiah, the mind of Christ. 
Which is why you can see... Um, yeah, how's my time? I'm going to... All right, so... Yeah, all right, let's do it. Deuteronomy 1, 26 or 27. Watch this. This is Israel. This is Israel that receives the Torah. Moses tells him, Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, watch this, fallen mind of Adam. Watch the idolatry here. Watch the way they manufactured God in their own image. You murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, He has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. They had completely crafted an idolatrous view of who God was. Don't be hard on them. Thank God for them. They were the crucible of day one out of which God brings forth the revelation that you and I are now privileged to participate in. Hebrews 10.1 For the law, having a shadow. What does a shadow cause? Darkness. So when you look in the law, it has a shadow. Which is why, by the way, this is so powerful. Why the book itself had to be sprinkled with blood. Because it wasn't a perfect book. Okay, you don't know this. I could tell by the looks on your faces. When Moses comes back with the tablets and the covenant is formed with Israel, he takes a blood sacrifice and he sprinkles everything, including the writings. And in those writings that he just sprinkled, the reason for blood was purification. So what he's showing was that the old covenant from its very beginning had to be read under the blood because it in and of itself was imperfect because it was tainted because the lens through which the revelation came was the fallen mind of Adam. See, Greek ideas of God say God is perfect and way out here and He can't have anything to do with matter or anything that's in a lower state. And so there's a series of intermediaries between God and the earth. That's Greek thinking. God doesn't condescend. And so in Greek thinking, the, uh, the, the, the perfect... Uh, the, all the ideas and forms and things that Plato talked about, trying to do this without going into too much philosophy had to be perfect. And so our conception of who God is comes more out of Greek philosophy than it does out of the Bible sometimes. Because we, we, th- th- there were segments of the church that said, that said that Jesus could not have taken on fallen flesh. He had to take on immaculate flesh. Perfect flesh. Because we wanted God in perfection. By the same token, we want a book in perfection. But God is not into that. When God made man, He got off His throne. Let's think about this. God made everything by just sitting up in heaven making a command. Light be. Grass grow. Seas recede. Oh, but when He made you, He he got His hands dirty. Because the Bible says that He got down in the dirt and He formed Adam from the dust of the ground. It's like God finally said, okay, enough of this royalty stuff. I'm ready to play in the mud a little bit. God doesn't want your humanity perfect. And He breathed, watch this, He breathed into Adam the breath of life, right? Something came out of God's mouth into Adam and Adam became something. And you know, the Bible says you're... The, the, the Bible never claims of itself to be inerrant. Mean, meaning totally without errors. The Bible says of itself, all Scripture is Inspired by God. Do you know where the word inspired comes from? Inspiration. Expiration. Respiration. Breathing. Literally in the Greek, all Scripture is breathed by God. 
which means it didn't drop, it didn't drop out of heaven perfect. It means that God mediated His revelation of who He was through humanity, even when humanity was bound and dark inside Himself. Because you don't have to be perfect for God to bless you. <laughs> That's enough to... Oh, come on! I, okay, maybe you all are like, you know this already, but I mean, that is a huge relief to me. Alright, I've spent way too much time on that. So we have things in the Old Testament that are light. For example, Psalm 103, verses 6 through 14. The Lord executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. This is the God of the Old Testament that we're so fond of as confused, mixed up Christians. We think there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament who feels better because of the cross. Okay, that's a caricature, but come on, that's what we got, right? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Look at this, God. For as heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. He didn't say so far He will. He said so far He hath. So far He hath. David Writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit under the Old Covenant before Jesus, before redemption, before the incarnation, says God is merciful and God is gracious and God is loving and God is like a father and God is, He forgives all your sins. He doesn't need blood to forgive. He didn't need Jesus to die to forgive. He didn't need to propitiate Himself at the cross in order to forgive. It was the goodness, it was the light of God beaming forth upon fallen humanity. To say, don't believe in Zeus, the angry God of the Greeks. Believe in <laughs> But you know as well as I do, there's other places where God's not depicted that way. I had a, you know, if I was going to do this longer, I'd show you. But there's, there are some ugly pictures of God in the Old Testament. There are places where God commands, seemingly, commands genocide in the Old Testament. There are places where God is eager to punish even His own people. In Deuteronomy 28, God says, uh, God, there's 14 verses of blessing in Deuteronomy 28 and something like 60-some uh, curses for Israel if they don't obey. And one place, in, and I mean, read it and think about it. Let it be a movie in your head, not just words. It'll be very R-rated. Because it's very violent. It's the most horrible ex human experiences ever put to pen. And there's a place in there where it says, just like God took pleasure in blessing you and prospering you, God will take pleasure in making you die a slow, painful, torturous death. God will take pleasure and great delight in watching you eat your own children because of starvation. I told you it was R-rated. What it, that's his own people. If he's that way with Israel. So what do we have going on there? That's why people are like, well, I'm afraid of that God. <laughs> that's the point. Because you have darkness and light mingled. And you have the Scriptures there, all of them inspired by God, to reveal to you the darkness that's in your own heart. Which is why you cannot go to the Bible to find out what God is like. Or if you do, you end up in worst case scenarios like Jonesboro Baptist Church. Or like people that would rather, in the name of Jesus, bomb their enemies than forgive their enemies. Or people who call themselves Christians, who would rather... Oh, Lord, come on. 
All right, take this in the spirit in which it's meant. I know it's crazy political season. Don't get triggered. Don't presume to know what I think. But Christians who would rather close their borders to the strangers than be hospitable to the strangers and try to figure out a way that they could coexist in the name of Jesus. Okay, just raise your hand if you got triggered. I'm just curious. Come on. <laughs> Second Corinthians 4, 6. It was God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, there were things that Jesus said about God that were completely inconsistent with things that were said in the Old Testament. Like, love your enemies. How about this one? Deuteronomy says, if you're good, I'll bless your land with rain. If you're bad, I'll shut up the heavens. So I'll cause it to rain on the just, but I'll withhold rain when you're unjust. And Jesus said, look at your father. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He's not just merciful to his own. He's merciful to all. So Jesus is overturning some of the images of God that we see because he's clearly representing the goodness of God and overthrowing the power of the fallen mind of Adam. He's literally, I mean, you know, it's crazy what we think. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just funny. One of the best things that I ever did as a, as a human being <laughs> was I quit thinking just in abstractions. And here's what I mean by that. I quit thinking in just words. And concepts. And I realized that every word, every sentence, every concept tracks to a real experience. If it doesn't, it's just words. It has no substance. Right? So, here's what I mean by that. If you can't put a movie to what somebody says, it's fluff. Let me give you an example from my message. I said, Deuteronomy 28. Some of you don't even have a clue what Deuteronomy 28 says. Some of you know what it says. That's a concept. That's abstraction. I said it's R-rated. That's still an abstraction. You might have thought there was a bunch of sex in it or something for all I know. Anything could be R-rated. Bad language. Who knows? Whatever, right? But then I began to give you a movie about slow, painful deaths to disease or a famine that lasted so long that parents would be eating their children. Actually, let me give you another movie. Sorry, it's in the Bible. I'm sorry if it offends you. But it actually says in there that women will eat their own placentas. They'll be so hungry. Now that, you tracked, didn't you? Unfortunately. Like some of you are going to spend the rest of Father's Day. I went to Father's Day and had to hear that. My ears are defiled now. My brain is, <laughs> I need to wash my brain. But do you see the difference? So when you read scripture, or when you hear messages, it's really important that you're able to track to a real life experience, because if you can't, it will not be real to you. It will just be information. And when the chips are down and the pressure's on, information doesn't cut it. It's only what seems concrete and real to you that gives you a solid rock upon which to stand in the midst of the storm. Which is why Jesus taught, didn't quote scripture when he taught most of the times. He taught in parables because he's giving people movies of what the kingdom of God is like. Something substantial that they can track to that's beyond just head knowledge. So we say that, so here's, so this is funny. This is how we preach this, right? So uh, I remember uh, 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 Jerry Savelle preached a, a message, uh, Born to Raise Hell. And we, and we talk about how Jesus defeated the powers of darkness, right? Jesus overcame them, right? And we use all kinds of violent images that are totally contrary to the teachings of Christ. Did you know that? 
Because we get this picture of Jesus, however we see it. Jesus defeated the powers of darkness with the sword of the Spirit, right? So we can have violent images and think Jesus went into hell or whatever and kicked butt. Took names and, or how do you say that? Are you with me? Are you breathing? Are you doing all right? So how did Jesus destroy the power of darkness? How did He disarm the devil? Did He do it because He descended with the armor of God and blew the place up? Did He have an Uzi? Did He use a literal sword and cut up spirits? How did He do spiritual warfare? You know what He did? He died on the cross because the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, that he destroyed principalities and powers. He disarmed them. He removed their armory. He took away their armory. What, so what, did they have bazookas? I mean, doesn't it bother you when you read the book of Revelation? If you're a futurist, doesn't it kind of bother you that they're fighting with swords and on horses? I'm just saying. Like if God's showing John the future, can he show him like tanks? And I mean, at least Tal Lindsay in the 70s had the decency to say, I think these scorpions here, they're the Huey helicopter. Is that what's going on in You know what it is? You know what it is? It's the false images of who God is, primarily that He's a punitive, vengeful God that holds people in captivity and keeps them with Adam hiding in the trees and covered with fig leaves in the midst of the garden. So what does Jesus do? He exposes the light. How? By dying on the cross. And saying, this is what God's like. I'd rather die than punish you. I'd rather be the victim than use my divine power to enforce my way through punishment. I'm not like the warrior God. And it was that image that's so powerful. That's why it's such a shame that as, okay, you're going to get triggered. Jesus, help me. In some ways, it's a shame we don't have crucifixes anymore. Because it's the crucifix that is the icon that destroys idolatry. It is a false gospel to believe that God changed because Jesus died. It is a false gospel to believe that God was ready to punish you and He punished Jesus in your stead. That's not what the church believed. That's not what the Bible teaches. That version of the story reinforces the fallen mind of Adam. The real gospel is, I'm not going to use my power to get my way. I'd rather die than force myself on you. You don't have God the Father angry and then Jesus the Son. You have Jesus revealing the Father. So that, Je- so that God the Father was always like Jesus dying on the cross. There was never a time He wasn't like Jesus dying on the cross. And there never will be a time, no matter how messed up you get, because you don't understand how to read the book of Revelation, there will never be a time that He's not like Jesus, the Lamb slain on the throne, dying on the cross. You know how we know that? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was dark, and the earth was chaotic, and the earth was hellish. And God didn't abandon it, and God didn't punish it. God condescended and came down to it and revealed himself in the midst of the darkness because he wanted relationship so badly. He wanted you to see him for who he was. So you know what happens? I think this is my theory. I think we need to have a conversation about these things. So let me make my contribution to the conversation and just realize it's not necessarily inspired. I could read something or have somebody rebuke me and change my mind tomorrow. But here's what I think. I don't think Jesus the Son, the man, 
was the sin bearer as much as he was revealing that the Father had always been the sin bearer. So that when people who are products of their culture become violent, because the only way you know how to worship is to kill an animal because that's the only frame of reference, that's the only movie for worship that you have in the idolatrous culture that you have. God says, I want relationship with you so much. If you're going to kill animals, at least kill them to me. And there'll be a sweet-smelling aroma to me. And he'll even let you blame him for the violence if you want to, because he's the sin-bearer. So if in ancient cultures, if your God was strong and you went in to take over a territory, you destroy everybody in that territory, God will want relationship with humanity, wanted relationship with Israel so bad, he would become the sin bearer and let the anger and the violence and the hatred that they had for the Gentiles in their own heart be attributed to him because in the very beginning, the sin that was there was being transferred to him. So that all Jesus did when he walked the Via Dolorosa, when he walked the trail of tears, all he did was fully manifest the light that had always been the Father, who had always entered in, desired relationships so badly that he entered in to the fallen heart and the fallen mind of humanity as a sin bearer, saying, I know you can't handle the darkness that's in your own heart, so you can transfer it to me. I can take it. And he bore our sins and carried away our transgressions. From Genesis to the end of the gospel, when Jesus said, it is finished. And the light had been fully separated from the darkness. So that any image you have of God that's not like that is an idol and a figment of your imagination. So a lot of you have been running from an angry God that doesn't exist. Lost in the darkness. But that's okay. Because what God did with creation and what God did with humanity and human history, God's doing with you. He's willing to enter into your darkness with you. He's willing to enter into your chaos with you. He doesn't say you have to get all your doctrines right in order to have relation, in order to have the fullness of my heart and my blessing. You don't have to get all your behavior right in order to have all the fullness of my blessing. I'll go into the dark. I'll go into the chaos. I'll go into the pain. I'll go into the confusion. I'll go into the hellishness of your own life. And you won't see me at first. But if you turn to me, you're going to find the light, the fullness of the image of God. Not found in a Bible, but found in the face of Jesus Christ. Already where the deepest darkness is in your heart. And it's the truth about who God is that sets you free. George, it's Father's Day. And I just, I heard so clearly, I, I kept like, do I tell him privately or publicly? But I just, I just feel to do this now. So when uh, we were worshiping, I, I just looked up and I was so glad to see you back. And the Spirit of God spoke to me, and it's Father's Day. And He just wanted me to tell you a simple message from Him. He wanted me to tell you that as your Father, He is very, very proud of you. And that He sees everything that you're going through, everything that you're doing. He sees the aspirations in your heart, the ambition that's in your heart. He sees the tenderness and the generosity of your heart that a lot of people don't see. And he just wants you to know he's with you. And he wants you to know on this Father's Day 
that he's very proud of you as his son. Let's stand up. Can we do that? My my passion, my heart in all of this is for us to see how good God really is. I have a friend in Orlando who's in the entertainment industry. He's also a pastor. And one of his friends that he knew in the entertainment industry was one of the people that was killed in that shooting in Orlando. And I just thought to myself, I haven't reached out to him yet, but I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be awesome if people who have the heart of God could recognize this as an opportunity to reach out to a part of humanity that has had inflicted upon them the fallen mind of Adam by the church. Wouldn't it be something if somehow we could find an opportunity to bring the light of Christ into the midst of those kind of dark situations. It's not the time. I was so proud of my mom. She posted something on Facebook, but let me tell you something. It is not the time to start getting worried about Washington's going to take your guns away. It is not if you're a Christian. Maybe you're more American than you are Christian. I don't know. It could be. There's a lot of that. I see a lot of it on Facebook. It is not the time to put forth your agenda one way or the other. You know, when Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had the answer. But you know what he did first? He entered into the sorrow with the people. The Bible says Jesus wept. And maybe we should just do what the Bible says and weep with those that weep before we start gravitating towards our political agendas or our tendency towards self-preservation. Or our need to prove that we were right. Or whatever. Are you breathing? Are you doing alright with that? So what I'd like to do, I'll have Nick come in a minute because there's some ministry, but what I'd like to do is, can we just, can we just open our hearts right now and just ask the Holy Spirit to come and cleanse us from the darkness that's been inside our own life? And could we take a position of repentance, which means to change your mind, change your paradigm, could we take a place of repentance on behalf of an evangelical church, not everybody in it, but certainly segments of the evangelical church who are more interested in promoting an angry God than the God that we find in the face of Christ? I just think there would be something powerful in that. Could we do that? Let's just bow our heads. Lord, thank you for the goodness of who you are. Thank you for the love and the mercy and the tenderness that you have. Thank you that no matter what a person's situation or sin or lifestyle, you do not just abandon any of us, but you pull us near. And where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So, Father, would you please forgive us for hating anybody, for holding fear or anger or violence in our hearts towards another human being who was made in your image. And, Lord, help us first to deal with our own idols. Help us to deal with the gods that we've crafted from our own imaginations that are not consistent with the Trinitarian view that we have in the Christian church. And Lord, we want to stand for our brothers, for our sisters, who may be afraid, who may be angry, who who are definitely, some of them, very broken. And Lord, we just ask for forgiveness and cleansing. And we ask, Lord, that there will be a way for there to arise a pure 
gospel voice in America once again. A pure gospel voice in the midst of our generation that will turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, the accuser, to the power of God. And Lord, would you release blessing over my church family, over my brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name. Amen.